0: Hello there, and welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, Strategies to Support Trauma-Impacted Students in the Classroom, presented by Dr. Kevin Plummer. Remember, your feedback is important to us. Please fill out the survey in the description down below for your chance to win a $100 gift card. Thank you.
1: Welcome, everyone. And thank you for attending the sixth offering in our fall webinar series. It's great to see so many of you taking time out in the middle of a a school day. I know many of you are are educators, teachers, and are probably uh, at the end of a a challenging day. So thank you for tuning in to Strategies to Support Trauma-Impacted Students in the Classroom with Dr. Kevin Plummer. I'm Sarah Dinklage, the CEO of Rhode Island Student Assistance Services. And this series is brought to you by RISAS with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health and our funder, the Department of Behavioral Health, Developmental Disabilities, and Hospitals, and focuses on youth, mental health, trauma, and the unique role that parents, educators, and communities play in fostering resilience in youth. Please sign in with your name, your affiliation, and role and located below this video, you will see a description box with links to our website and Facebook page where we will let you know when more content like this will be released. In addition, don't forget to complete the post survey. By completing the survey, you will have the ability to receive a certificate of completion, CEUs, and be entered into a drawing to win a $100 gift card. Before introducing our presenter, I want to tell you about our next webinar scheduled for November 2nd on the topic of youth empowerment with Lisa Hoopas and Hannah Woodhouse from Sojourner House. To register for these and our other upcoming webinars, go to our website, www.risas.org. We are extremely fortunate to bring you Dr. Kevin Plummer, Dr. Plummer is back by popular demand after many of you saw his webinar last season on fostering resilience in youth, the role of the family, which you can still access through the RISAS website. Dr. Plummer is a licensed psychologist with more than 30 years of experience specializing in childhood trauma, autism spectrum disorder, stress and resilience, and school-based therapeutic programming for emotionally impacted students. He is also the creator of the brain-based therapeutic intervention program for children, which is a guide based on applied brain science for producing school-based interventions for emotionally impacted children. His work is featured in a vast library of original articles and other program material on his free access website, KevinPlummerPhD.com. Dr. Plummer welcomes questions at the end of the webinar and is willing to stay um, past the end um, to answer those questions. So please feel free to put your questions in the chat as we go along and we will get to those at the end. So without further ado, I turn this over to Dr. Plummer.
0: Okay. Thank you so much, Sarah, for that kind introduction. And thank you to everybody watching this for your interest in childhood trauma. An understanding of trauma gives us a ton of insight into a variety of emotional challenges that we see in children today. So thanks for tuning in, and let's see if we can add something useful to what you already know. I've spent the last 30 years consulting in schools, because long ago, when I worked in a mental health center, I thought, how much better would it be if I could help teachers provide kiddos with an entire week of healing moments, rather than me just relying on one 50-minute office visit? And as much as I've helped teachers to do just that, these same people, teachers, special educators, have played a huge role in helping me. They've helped to create hundreds of interventions, and they've actually shaped the way that this type of consultation is done. I've had such a tremendous opportunity to work with so many talented, creative, insightful, and really devoted educators, people who never hesitate to dig in and try whatever we could invent. So this webinar is full of ideas and strategies that I developed with these people, strategies that were implemented and perfected in their own classrooms. So it's been an inspiring and a heartwarming experience for me working with such excellence. I just wanted to give credit, say thank you and dedicate this webinar to them. Just a note about the visuals on some of the slides, you'll notice that on some slides, the visual doesn't seem to match the printed content. Instead, the visual is a nature scene. This is why I've done that. It's difficult to be bombarded by so much child trauma content, to listen to it, to read it on the slide, and then to see a visual depiction of it. When our senses become overloaded, our brain has a way of protecting us by shutting down somewhat, taking in less. And I don't want that to happen to you. So instead of bombarding you with visual images of difficult emotional content, the nature scenes give you a visual rest while you're listening to, or while you're reading through some tough content on the slides. This webinar will give you a lot of strategies, but it's also good to be able to know the subject well enough in a common sense way to come up with some of your own ideas when you need them. And it's always good to know why exactly that you're doing something, why a strategy is a good strategy. So that's why we need a common sense understanding. And for that, we'll very briefly focus on how trauma changes the brain and body and how that affects school functioning. Then we'll discuss some of the circumstances that have been known to cause childhood trauma. The reason I do that is to help you further distance your classroom circumstances from traumatizing circumstances, which is a very important type of support that we'll talk about in a little bit. After that, we'll look at some of the most impactful strategies. These are strategies that are meant to be applied to the entire classroom, but they'll be particularly supportive for any of your trauma impacted students So the first third of the webinar is on developing a practical understanding, and the last two-thirds is devoted to the most impactful strategies. Childhood trauma is caused by repeated exposure to life circumstances that are highly emotional, chronically stressful, and perceived as threatening. So exposure like that creates a set of indelible emotional memories that are easy to trigger even within the classroom. It also sensitizes the brain to stress. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Repeated exposure to traumatizing circumstances causes the stress response to be elevated over and over again, and that changes the brain. The brains of trauma-impacted kiddos become much more sensitive to stress and much more emotionally overreactive to ordinary events around them. Your brain gets better at whatever it spends its time doing. If it lives in chronic stress, it gets better at quickly ramping up the stress response, better at keeping stress up for a longer period, not letting it come down, and better at responding this way to many different circumstances, even as those circumstances may not be threatening at all. That's what I mean by sensitized, and that's why many of our strategies are designed to quiet the stress response. Just as trauma is a stress disorder, It's also a disorder of memory, of becoming unwittingly hijacked by memory. Your network of memories is stored throughout your body, not just in your brain. See if this has ever happened to you. Maybe one time you ate something that made you really ill. Then sometime later, you come across a smell that gives you an instant reaction in your gut. Your stomach feels like it's turning over. A bad taste comes into your mouth. Your throat gets dry, making it difficult to swallow. Your heart might speed up. Maybe you start to sweat a little stomach muscles get tight, and suddenly you've lost your appetite. All this is well before you've even had a chance to think about what that smell is. See how quick your physical and emotional systems are engaged just based on one bit of sensory information. That's because bits of memory from past experiences are stored, in addition to the brain, all over the body. And these parts of the body are ready to react instantly to a triggered memory. That's how trauma memory hijacks children. A trauma memory is a complex emotional memory, a linked network of memory fragments stored all over the body and brain. And these memory fragments can be strong emotions, bodily sensations, images, thoughts, words, sounds, and more all linked together like a spider web. This network of memories is very vulnerable to becoming activated at any time, often triggered by fairly normal circumstances in the classroom. One triggered fragment can sometimes set off the entire trauma memory network, like touching a spider web in one spot and having the web jump at dozens of points across the entire structure. Here's a little bit more about why trauma is a disorder of memory. Throughout the day, the circumstances we face trigger the memories we need, all without effort, which is great because this allows us to function smoothly and automatically in familiar situations without much deliberate thought. We also use our stored memories to filter and interpret new experiences. We predict what will happen, what will happen next based on what has happened before. Sometimes the circumstances that our kiddos face during the day trigger their trauma memories, even though those memories are not really needed. So trauma impacted kiddos are using their trauma memories to guess what's going to happen next. Just as they use their trauma memories, to filter and interpret their new experiences at school. Their brains filter their experiences through their trauma memories, looking for matches so they can quickly protect themselves, often assigning threat to people and things that are not in reality a threat. So I'm sure you can imagine how all of this can lead to emotional overreactions in the classroom. And because sensory information reaches the thinking brain last, the outer part, the cortex, the body and the emotional system can become very dysregulated well before these children even have a chance to think about what's really happening. Their body and emotional brain tells them what's happening before their thinking brain tells them anything. This is why when we support trauma impacted students, our interventions are designed to calm the nervous system, make the classroom more predictable and dependable, and create even more distance between the classroom experience and their trauma experience, or eventually these kiddos can trust that the classroom is a safe and calm place for them, and that people in the classroom are trustworthy, dependable, and that they act in predictable ways. If we can achieve that, these kiddos can can make new positive memories about school and their relationships at school, and these new memories can become their new default when they're in the classroom. See if this makes sense to you. When you walk a new path in the woods, it's tough to find that path the next time compared to the old, well-worn path you've been using until you've walked the new path so many times that it's worn down and maybe the older path becomes obscured from non-use. That's what we're doing with our interventions. We're enabling the child to make new memories that become the new default in school. The trauma memories are still there, but now the new memories become the worn path and they're more likely to be triggered when the student's in the classroom. When we discuss strategies, ask yourself, how does this strategy make the day more predictable? How does it lower the kiddos alarm level and help them stay present and focused on what's really happening? And how does this strategy help children form positive relationships and make new positive memories? Let's try to imagine what it's like to trauma impact the students trying to learn. First, it can be a huge challenge for them to concentrate, stay focused, and think about what's being taught at the moment. Often these kiddos are preoccupied by intrusive thoughts, by emotions that just interrupt their focus and pull them away from what's being taught. So one of the obstacles to learning is internal distraction. Here's another obstacle to learning. A trauma brain is easily triggered to go into a stress response because that brain has become stress sensitized. This is what I said earlier. When you're reasonably calm, You can use the thinking, reflecting, and creative part of your brain to learn. When you're overly stressed, those systems are shut down in favor of the more reflexive and reactive parts of your brain. The brain on stress is rigid in thinking, limited in creativity, and has difficulty retrieving connections related to the material that's being taught. So that is a really significant roadblock to learning. In addition, these kiddos can become upset by their intrusive memories, so their mood can quickly shift to the negative, and mood can profoundly affect how kiddos approach what they're supposed to be learning. And still, there are even more trauma-related challenges to attention, focus, and learning in the classroom. For example, the trauma brain is more prone to dissociation. This is what that means. Kiddos might more often drift into a daydream where they're like physically present, but their mind is someplace else. They're listening but they're not fully processing what they hear. Maybe they remember reading the story, but they can't really remember what it was about. Now, dissociation is not an unusual behavior. Maybe this has happened to you. You're driving along your well-known route to a familiar destination, listening to the radio. And when you reach your destination, you don't have any clear memory of what you passed along the way or anything you heard on the radio. So we process enough information to stay on course and operate the car. But when our attention is diverted inward, We don't make any memories of what we experience along the way. So you can see more frequent dissociation will make it very difficult for kiddos to form strong memories of what they're supposed to be learning. On top of all that, trauma-impacted kiddos frequently misperceive because, as I said, trauma memories are used to filter what's happening in the present. For example, when corrected by the teacher, kiddos may misperceive that the teacher doesn't like them, is being mean to them, is singling them out and shaming them. Saying bad things about them. These misperceptions can even lead to the development of false memories. And it's the false memory that will influence how the child approaches the same situation the next time rather than what really happened. Emotional control is another concern for us in the classroom. Trauma impacted children sometimes experience a roller coaster of intense emotion while they're sitting in the classroom trying to learn in an attempt to cope with chronic threat and unpredictability. These kiddos are hypervigilant, and they more easily startle. Some of these kiddos are in a persistent state of fear. Then they also suffer from irritability because that is a common byproduct of chronic stress. When they're this emotionally dysregulated, the ordinary circumstances of the day, like not getting a turn or being corrected for doing their work the wrong way, those ordinary circumstances can trigger a much stronger emotional reaction than the circumstances warrant. You may also notice that traumatized kiddos sometimes become bossy or a little aggressive. This is because they frequently feel out of control in their lives due to the unpredictability they face. They have no control over the people or the circumstances of their trauma, and they have limited ability to escape or avoid these upsetting situations. So you may notice that they attempt to take over and feel in control wherever they can. Finally, let's look at relationship impact in the classroom. Trauma-impacted kiddos feel very vulnerable in their relationships at school. They more often feel nervous around people, threatened, insecure, feel a lack of trust. And they can be more clingy or overly dependent on adults because they so often feel helpless or less capable. Because they frequently feel unsafe and vulnerable and overwhelmed by their feelings of doubt, shame, incompetence, these kiddos are sometimes reluctant to take chances. So they often try to avoid challenging learning situations. And they may overreact to any experiences of failure or making a mistake. What's more, they expect unfairness and rejection in their relationships. So they may overly misperceive rejection and unfairness. They may overreact to being left out or not getting picked for a turn. So that's what it's like for some of the students in your classroom who've been traumatized. Trauma impacts on their thinking, their concentration and focus, on their emotional stability, and it impacts their ability to build relationships. So what happens to children to cause this type of impact? Many of you have heard about the ACEs study from 25 years ago, where it was determined that the number of adverse childhood experiences, that's ACEs, correlated with poor health in adulthood. 56 to 60% of all adults in that study reported having experienced at least one of the 10 designated ACEs. We'll take a quick look at that list of 10. But as alarming as all that sounds, that might be an underestimate of what children actually experience, because there are many more traumatizing circumstances than just the 10 ACEs that they looked at as part of that study. And even more important than the number of ACEs is how often the same ACE is repeated. Many children experience unrelenting trauma, but it's only one ACE over and over again. It's not hard to imagine then that a large percentage of students sitting in our classrooms are impacted by trauma to some extent. In a class of 25 children, it wouldn't be unusual for 12 to 14 to have been exposed to traumatizing circumstances. And for three to five of these students to be trauma impacted on a more significant level. And that's probably a conservative estimate. There'll be uh, information in my uh, resource section that you can look at if you want to look more deeply into that research. The list of traumatizing circumstances that we're looking at now and over the next three slides is in no particular order and includes the list of ACEs from the research I mentioned. Those are labeled with an asterisk, and it lists many other adverse childhood experiences. As you go through this list, think about how frequent, how threatening, or how chronic and unrelenting the circumstances could be for the children in your classroom. And think about how to avoid triggering traumatized kiddos by creating circumstances in your classroom that is so totally different from the circumstances on this list. There are no descriptions on these slides, but the materials in the trauma section of my website Can give you a description of each adverse childhood experience. Right now, though, I think we could take a closer look at just a few just to give you an idea. Like, for instance, number one, live in a dangerous neighborhood. A child may be in fear of getting hurt anytime they have to go outside. They may often wake up at night to someone banging on the door trying to get in, or they may hear people on the street shouting and threatening each other. They may hear gunfire or or hear windows being smashed or hear people screaming at each other at all hours of the day and night. These children. These children might be on high alarm when the classroom becomes too noisy or chaotic or when acting out in the classroom is not addressed quickly enough. Here's another one that is very important. Number three, chronic shaming, belittling, humiliation, and rejection. This could include being chronically berated by an upset parent, ordinary mistakes triggering an out-of-control parental rage. And in this rage, the child labeled with demeaning character traits, such as, you're lazy, you're always so stupid, you can't do anything right, you're such a total total screw-up, you'll never amount to anything. You can't even read a book meant for kids half your age, you're a total embarrassment to this family. Now, words like that, repeatedly burned into the brain and pounded deep into the body, that follows kiddos into everything they do, and they can be triggered Whenever things get to be too hard or the student needs to be corrected or when they have to read aloud or answer aloud or do their work in front of the class. Chronic exposure to people with serious mental health impairment. That's number 11. This includes children living with parents who are depressed and can't readily get out of bed. Drug-addicted parents, parents who have disabling anxiety and can't leave the house or they incessantly press their fears, their anxieties or their paranoia onto their children. It also includes living with parents and siblings who have explosive anger disorders, or unpredictable and sometimes threatening and frightening mood swings, or living with siblings who have developmental disabilities but are not getting the proper treatment. And here's the rest of the list, which you can read more about on my website if you want to. Remember, the goal is to be familiar enough with these circumstances so you can create classroom circumstances That are less triggering because they don't even come close to resembling the trauma circumstances. Dr. Bruce Perry makes an eloquent point about children's resilience in his recent book, What Happened to You? It's a great book. People often claim when they see children facing traumatizing circumstances that children are resilient. Don't worry, they'll come out of this okay. Resilience though is not an innate feature of children, but that's a common belief and people use that as an emotional shield, wishful thinking that protects them from their own feelings of discomfort and helplessness when they're looking at trauma. This helps us to regulate our own emotions by telling ourselves that these kiddos are resilient. They'll be okay. They'll be unaffected, unchanged. Well, they won't be okay. Not really, unless someone pays attention to their resilience. Hopefully, that happens in the family or in the community. But rest assured, resilience can definitely be built in a supportive classroom. So what can you do for the kiddos in your classroom who've been traumatized? There are many ways to strengthen resilience, but we'll talk about the strategies that can be incorporated into the way a classroom is normally run. While you're implementing these strategies, providing a supportive, calming, resilience-building experience over the course of the school year, Remember, you're also helping kiddos to change their worldview, their trust and faith in people and their opinion of themselves. And you're giving them a sense of hope for the future. The first three types of support, each with several strategies, we'll go over in depth. And the last five categories, which could certainly fill a second webinar, we'll get a very brief but useful introduction in the last five to 10 minutes of this webinar. And I think you'll hear enough about them to be able to think of some of your own strategies in those categories. No one can implement strategies in all these areas at one time. Just focusing on one of the areas will help. But you'll have to experiment to determine which area and which strategies fit best with how you like to run the classroom and connect with your kiddos. Remember this, your ability to connect with your students. Help them feel known, recognized, and validated. Help them feel confident, secure, and important. Your relationship with your students, that's your superpower. So it will be a critical part of many of the strategies that we discuss now. Our first set of strategies involves classroom culture and community, which, in my opinion, is also the most important category. Being part of a safe, caring, predictable, and supportive community promotes trust and resilience with trauma-impacted students. Every classroom is already a community. With its own culture and way of doing things, its own value system, its own set of expectations and routines, its own way of communicating, those are the things that make a classroom a community. But resilience in children is built and strengthened when the classroom functions as a community of compassion. Everyone feels more calm and relaxed, less stressed, more safe and more secure in a community where people are kind, polite, patient, and caring where everyone tries to be helpful, cooperative and respectful, where appreciation and gratitude is openly expressed and where people compliment, encourage and celebrate each other. A compassionate community like that is much less likely to trigger threat and trauma impacted kiddos and much more likely to build positive memories and trigger hope and willingness to engage. This type of community lowers alarm in the brain for all students quiets the stress response, increases focus on learning, it promotes creative and reflective thinking, and it gives kiddos a greater chance to recover nicely from whatever small stresses will occur during the day. We should remember that for children experiencing trauma, the best predictor of their current mental health functioning is their current connectedness, and that's something that a compassionate community offers. The brain is continually scanning the social environment for signals that tell us if we do belong or we don't belong. When we get the signals, many of which are subconscious, that we belong, our stress response quiets down, telling us we're safe, we're welcome. Belonging, being seen and heard and understood, feeling connected and important and appreciated is highly rewarding. And that is what a compassionate community offers. When students enter the classroom, especially trauma-impacted students, they enter with questions that relate to their past experiences. Questions like this. Am I important? Am I seen? Am I heard? Is it safe? Are the adults paying attention? Are they attuned and responsive and on top of things? Will I be supported and protected or left to fend for myself? Can I be successful? Am I liked? Am I appreciated? Does the teacher believe in me? A compassionate classroom community is set up to continually answer all these questions. As we've said, crime-impacted students are on high alarm as they come to school. High alarm. They're prepared to face a day full of threatening circumstances because high alarm is a biological instinct of self-protection and survival. In one study, they showed the resting heart rate of crime-impacted children at 132 beats per minute instead of the typical average of 70 to 100. That's high alarm and self-protection instinct in action. Because of this and based on their tendency to misperceive and feel threatened, if trauma impacted students are not guided otherwise, if no one is actively and overtly directing the classroom to be a compassionate community, these kiddos will often see the classroom as threatening. It's what they've learned, it's what they expect to find, and it's what they think they say. So we'll focus on how to create the community that they need instead of the community they expect to find or the community they're inclined to create on their own. When we spend time in a compassionate community, our brains produce an abundance of oxytocin and serotonin. These are hormones and neurochemicals, and this stimulates the nervous system to quiet the stress circuits of your brain. The experience of compassion in the classroom not only quiets the stress response, it has kiddos feeling more confident, less defensive, less reactive to things that would normally trigger them and better able to recover from making a mistake. Research has shown that when the brain is on the neurochemistry of compassion, it also has kiddos more open to suggestions and direction and it broadens their perspective and allows them to think, reason, and problem solve more easily and more creative. If you think that sounds like it would be great for all kiddos, you're right. The brain on compassion learns a lot more than the brain on stress. If you're interested, this research is summarized in my website article on positive psychology. The reduced level of stress that traumatized children experience in a compassionate community also helps them to be more present so they can process better what's going on around them. They're less pulled into the trauma of their past and less preoccupied or worried about things that may come their way later in the day or when they get home. And one more point worth repeating. Given the way that trauma predisposes children to misperceive and overreact to normal classroom circumstances, If we wanna minimize misperception and avoid triggering the trauma impacted student, the classroom has to look and feel like a very different community than the community that traumatized them. Think about that list of circumstances that we reviewed earlier. This different community, your classroom, has to show that it values and reinforces very different behavior, behavior that reflects caring, kindness, compassion, understanding, and positive regard for others. So how do we build this type of community in the classroom? It takes quite a commitment, but it starts with establishing clear core classroom values, values that focus on how people respect and support each other. That's a good place to start. This slide and the next one is going to show the values that make up the foundation of a compassionate classroom community. When teaching kiddos about these values, use the words our and we. Try not to lead off with I and we you such as in this class i need you to be respectful instead put it this way in our class we're all trying to respect each other's ideas the words our and we help establish a sense of norm within the class and that's important class norms are powerful influences on student behavior much more influential than rules so we should make an effort to shape them the way we need them to be so here's our list of values for a compassionate community Every item, every item on that list is important, and you can read about all of them on the slides. I'm not gonna read through the whole list now, but here are just a few examples. In our class, students respect each other's ideas. They show tolerance and value patience. Students are polite and considerate. They're cooperative and helpful whenever possible. They listen to each other with an intention to care and truly understand. They work hard, try to improve, try to get better. They respect the belongings of others. They're willing to share with others and they accept responsibility. Now these values, won't develop on their own just because we tell students they're important. They have to be taught and brought to life in the classroom. They have to be made into something else besides just words. First, they should be prominently posted and then pointed out and recognized in real time throughout the day, all around the class using the incidental behavior of the students. Let them see what these values look like and sound like and what a difference they make right in the moment. These values should be discussed at morning meetings or during transitions or several other quiet moments throughout the day. They should be previewed ahead of when they'll be important in an upcoming activity and reinforced in real time right at the moment when they're being shown by students, which we'll talk more about in a bit. Also, they could be pointed out in the literature that you're reading, and they could be incorporated into writing assignments. Simply put, it's the way that life is lived in the classroom all day long for at least that school year. You could also create a teacher's pledge from that list of values. A pledge serves as a unifying message for the classroom. At the very least, it's a way of creating a universal language for the class a shared compassionate community vocabulary. A pledge also helps to set the norm for the class. See how this sounds to you. In this class, you are cared for. You are helped when you need it. You are listened to with intention and thoughtfulness. You are understood. You are treated with courtesy and respect. You are appreciated. You are treated with kindness. You are treated with patience. Your accomplishments are celebrated. Your efforts are recognized and appreciated. Your feelings are considered with sensitivity. Your ideas are important. You are important. In this class, you will feel valued, worthwhile, and proud. You will be given every chance to do your best and be your best. You will feel safe and secure. You will keep trying. You will have hope. You will succeed. You will see each day as full of promise. Imagine how you would feel if you worked in a community that made that type of pledge to you. You can turn your pledge into a display and use the language from it, refer to it, when you reinforce your students, when you notice them doing any of these things for each other, just as you can use the same vocabulary to correct them. A display like this is a reference for you. It helps you to be consistent in what you notice, in what you point out, and in the way that you label those experiences consistency in matching language with experience helps your students learn and remember what it looks like, sounds like, and feels like, and what it means to live by and act according to the various classroom values. Now, this is the teaching process for any new behavior. We can't assume that children know what these things are or that they have the skills to act accordingly. We have to teach them. In every grade, we have to teach them the version for that grade, which is why the values have to be embedded in everything the students do and why we have to be prepared to instruct and reinforce kiddos and guide them when they need to be educated about these skills. Throughout the day, for example, there are many activities that have academic objectives, but these same activities should also have explicit objectives that address how students should conduct themselves according to the community values while they engage in those academic activities. Each day, give yourself an intention to look for these values in the behaviors of your students. As I just said, we can't assume that students know what these things are, what they look like, sound like, and how they feel, or how they apply in different situations. Nor can we assume they've ever been reinforced or had success when acting in this way. Remember, resilience does not develop on its own, but your class can be the place where kiddos learn how to live in a way that builds their resilience. Here's an example of how you might reinforce a values moment in real time. It could sound like this. I just want to say that I really appreciate how patient you are. You had something to say, but you waited until it was your turn and you listened respectfully as your classmate tried to answer the question. That's what I mean when I say in this class, we listen to each other and we respect each other. Is another real-time reinforcement example. I just want to point out how polite you are. It was so nice to hear the words thank you after I just helped you or that work was tough for you and I saw you struggling with it. What really impressed me about you is that you didn't give up just because it was hard. You kept crying. You are a hard worker, that's for sure. When you shine a light in this way, you're showing everyone in class what it looks like and sounds like and why it is appreciated and important. Recognition, when it's highly specific like that, when it refers to an actual example in real time, that creates a complex memory, a strong visual, emotional and verbal memory all linked together. It makes a memory of a positive moment that can be triggered the next time the student is in a similar situation. In a compassionate community, the day is filled with recognition of highly specific positive moments just like that. The words of the pledge and the words that describe the classroom community, they will come alive for the kiddos in the experiences that you choose to recognize in this highly specific way. Set an intention early in the day and a few times throughout the day to find examples of the classroom values in action. Now, setting an intention is a way of making a very specific mental note, visualizing what you'll be looking for in this Setting an intention that primes your brain to become alert and take notice when something happens that matches the intention you set earlier in the day. That's how setting an intention works. Look at the pledge or list of values and remind yourself every day and throughout the day of what you want to see and recognize. And eventually you're noticing and reinforcing that will happen more automatically. Prime students in the same way. Pick a value that you want them to look for throughout their day and then reflect. Give students a chance to recall an example that they spotted. The more often you set an intention in this way and the more often students reflect on the results, the easier it becomes to shift their default setting. So they more automatically notice and experience their class as a kind, caring, compassionate, and supportive community. When the community is experienced in this way, when they can see that, It's easier for traumatized kiddos to feel safe, less threatened, less triggered, to see the best all around them, to be their best. That's the type of class where trauma-impacted students thrive. That's a class they can walk into each morning with a renewed sense of hope and possibility. That's what will be triggered when they walk through the door in the morning. In order to change any part of the brain, that part has to be activated. To learn about compassion, to appreciate compassion, to become compassionate, you must experience compassion. If you haven't experienced very much compassion, and you know, many trauma-impacted kiddos have experienced much less than their share, the neural networks associated with compassion will be underdeveloped, as will the capacity to act in a compassionate way until it's taught and experienced over and over again. Empathic fluency, just like any type of fluency, requires sufficient exposure and repetition. And this is what you're providing over the course of the year in your classroom when your classroom is a compassionate community. It's not a lesson once a week or once a day. It's a day full of real life lessons and a week full of days like that. Here's another way to teach this. Borrow language from your list of values when you need to correct, redirect, or remind students about improving their behavior. It might sound something like this. In this class, remember, we're all trying to listen to each other and be respectful of everyone's ideas. So give your classmates a better chance to speak without being interrupted and make sure your comments are more polite and respectful. When you use specific and familiar language from your classroom values to redirect in this way, it becomes a much more teachable moment because the action stops and you shine a light on something very specific and relevant to the community right at that moment. And you're not triggering defensive behavior because you're you're using familiar, scripted, predictable language. So it's not personal. And you're not telling students how wrong they are and what to stop doing. You're telling them how to be right and what to start start doing more of. In this way, you're showing them how they can change their behavior to better align with what the community, their peer group, is trying to be. Students thrive on teacher approval as well as approval from any community they're part of. With a continued refocus on the classroom values, with reinforcement of the behavior that aligns with those values, students become more aware of what the community approves of. And it becomes clearer to them how their behavior needs to change to gain better standing within their own community. Remember this when correcting and redirecting students though. Children are imperfect developing human beings. They're just learning how to be people. And so often they're struggling with something. They don't want to be A source of trouble for others, a source of frustration, irritation, and disappointment. Remember, children want to be happy, successful, and smart. They want to be helpful, proud, and well liked. But there are reasons why they can't be who they want to be at certain moments, often trauma related reasons. We have to try to embrace them during their struggles. So look for the child behind that struggle. That's another way you can be a model of compassion in the classroom. Try to ask yourself this question when you see the struggle. How can I help this young person who wants to be better, wants to feel better, wants to be successful, and wants to be a contributing member of this community, but instead is struggling? All right, let's take a breath now. All that about supporting kiddos uh, with a compassionate community, that is a lot to digest all at once. But now we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about strategies designed to support attention, concentration, and focus. We discussed this earlier. The trauma brain is susceptible to internal distraction, right? Often hijacked unpredictably by persistent negative thoughts, by a wave of feelings, by images and sensations that just pop up. It's also important to remember that stress in general interferes with attention and concentration by reducing activity in the frontal cortex while increasing activity in the emotional circuits of the brain. This is why our trauma-impacted kiddos may appear to be daydreaming or in a fog or they're, they're going to struggle sometimes to follow instruction and remember what they've learned. Attention is the gateway to memory. If you're trying to learn something, but you can't fully pay attention to it, you may be aware of the information, but you won't pass much of that information into your memory. We've all had that experience, right? We miss an entire segment of what we're supposedly listening to or who we're listening to because our mind is someplace else for a moment. Stress not only interferes with attention and concentration, stress also interferes with creative and reflective thinking and with reasoning and evaluating. Our brain on stress can't make meaningful connections between what we're learning and what we already know. So our trauma-impacted kiddos, they're going to struggle with tasks that require these higher level thinking skills. So what can we do for trauma-impacted kiddos to increase their focus on what's happening in the classroom instead of what is playing in their trauma memory? First, every so often, insert very brief attention reset breaks into the lesson, especially during more passive learning activities that involve extended listening or extended independent reading. Maybe that brief interruption to reset attention sounds as simple as something like this. Okay, everyone, take a breath and bring your brains back into the room right here, and let's focus again. Also. More frequently, interrupt the lesson and check for comprehension to determine that certain students have been keeping up with the pace of the material. You can also revitalize attention by stopping and give students something specific to think about going forward as they listen. A cue for thinking while listening may sound <coughs> something like this. I want you to really concentrate now and try to make a connection to what I'm going to say next because right after that, I'm gonna give you a chance to tell the class about your connection. You can also revitalize focus by giving students specific content to be listening for. A content listening cue may sound something like this. There are two main reasons why the programs wanted to trade with the Native Americans. So see if you can listen for both as we go on and raise your hand when you think you have them. Remember, call more frequently on the students that you're concerned about. Another focus recommendation, refer often to a visual that shows what you're talking about. Words are fleeting, tough to hold onto, but a visual, a list, a completed example, a table or a map or a diagram, a visual can convey information continuously so that when attention drifts and then comes back online, students can quickly become oriented to what the lesson is about and find their place. Also important, pace out the amount of new verbal input during teaching. Instead of such a long segment of new input, more often stop to show completed examples, to model the solution, to demonstrate one. Verbal input in those cases is a repeat of what's already been said. It's not new, it's a circling back. So it helps to control the pacing of the new information. Some days you'll circle back in this way quite often and other days less so, depending on how easily your trauma impacted students are keeping up with the new information. Also plan to repeat directions and then engage certain students in telling back to you what they think the direction is. You can also break up listening and reading into chunks with very brief stretch breaks in between or stop the lesson after a chunk and have kiddos take a series of deep cleansing breaths. This will quiet a stress response and increase focused attention. To give students more control over their own level of attention, you can help them budget their attention by setting explicit short-term attention goals. Instead of listening indefinitely, for example, quantify how much will be covered, how many topics will be covered on a list, how many answers there will be to listen for, how long the next listening segment will be, like I'm gonna have you listen for five minutes while I cover three main points. So you're showing them where the end is. All this helps the listeners to manage their stamina for attention instead of having them slip into premature attention breaks. Also, give students something that they can use at their desk to help them organize what they're hearing or what they're reading. Maybe this is a diagram to fill in or a table or a chart or something to read to follow along. This visual will also help to continually cue their attention and reorient them when their attention has been lost briefly and then comes back. Finally, you can reset student focus with a quick and simple change of scene, like leaving the desk to get a drink of water or sharpen a pencil or go get a book or a piece of paper. Uh, You may want opportunities like this for very brief, brief, uh, purposeful movement. Um, This is not randomly get up when you want. This is uh, when these breaks occur, there's something very specific the student's doing and then returning to the desk. You can also reset focus with exposure to bright light For instance, exposure to daylight right in the classroom can be accomplished by having kiddos go over to the windows and look outside to find something specific that you've identified. Finally, with certain students, check in more frequently when they're working independently. Those are a lot of options there for supporting attention. And we're doing great right now because we're on to our last in-depth category, fostering gratitude and appreciation. You're probably thinking, This is really just another aspect of compassionate community, which is true, but it's such a significant aspect that I think you'll see that it deserves its own section. Your feeling of gratitude, really appreciating a wonderful moment or a gesture of kindness triggers the nervous system to restore the body to an emotional and physiological state of calm and well-being, which is pretty remarkable. And what we want for our trauma-impacted kiddos and for all kiddos, really. Finding ways to feel and acknowledge gratitude Especially expressing appreciation is an evidence based resilience enhancing behavior because it resets the stress response. If you can increase your attention and your students' attention to what you appreciate throughout your day, I know it's not so easy going through the day being mindful of what you appreciate, but as much as you can do that and your students do that, you'll achieve higher levels of calm during the day. And we'll talk more about how you can train your brain to do that automatically. But imagine what a difference this could make for all your students. The more frequently anyone engages in the practice of appreciating, the greater the benefit. And the more they're actually changing their brain's ability, teaching their brain to more automatically find and remember things worth appreciating. This takes effort at first and dedication, but it's one of the best things you can do to lower your baseline stress and to help the kiddos in your class do the same. And what's more, your brain on gratitude makes social engagement easier, which is great because social support is a primary source of resilience and coping with stress. This is how that works. When the feeling of gratitude activates the body's social engagement system, it makes it easier for the brain to use information from eye gaze and voice tone to convey and read emotion. And it makes it easier for the brain to use and read facial expressions. So the feeling of gratitude makes it easier to engage socially and build social support. This is important because people use the social engagement system to bond, to feel safe, secure, protected, connected, and cared for. And that's especially important for our trauma impacted students. So, gratitude is a huge game changer for the kiddos in your classroom. Not only does it lower their stress and add to their sense of safety and well being and social connectedness it also increases their mental focus along with their creative and critical thinking skills. This is why gratitude needs its own resilience section. It's hard to imagine any one thing that could do more for academic and social emotional success. Keep in mind, this is not about trying to make more good happen in the day. It's about helping the brain to get better at automatically noticing the good that's already occurring. Most people, especially trauma-impacted kiddos, They're not inclined to automatically see their day this way. So it won't be easy to change that mindset in your classroom. But the classroom is the perfect place to cultivate a practice of gratitude to teach your kiddos how to notice things worth appreciating and how to express that appreciation. Start by using yourself as an example. This is a chance to interrupt and reset your own stress response while showing your students how to do the same. Here's an example of how the teacher can model appreciation. It could, it could sound something like this. This is what I've been noticing about you. You are so patient in the way that you explain the math to your group. Not everyone gets it right away, but you don't make them feel bad about that. You just patiently listen and answer their questions while nicely encouraging them. I really appreciate it and so does your group. Or something like this. The library is completely neat and picked up. Thank you so much for helping. I really appreciate how good you are at organizing things and making things neat. Or something as simple as this. If you look out the window right now, you'll see that the sky is this incredible color of bright blue. Setting an example of appreciating is not done as a lesson in manners. or because you want students to feel obligated to say thank you. So don't get me wrong, teaching good manners is important, but appreciating something or somebody for our purposes right now is about doing something for yourself. It's about changing your own brain training your brain to automatically recognize more things worth appreciating so that you and your students can experience more moments of gratitude instead of missing them. And so your students can benefit from the way that gratitude modulates their stress, improves their ability to engage with others, and improves their thinking skills and focus. This practice will also help you and your kiddos shift the narrative of the day. The story you tell yourself at the end of the day has a lot to do with what you're looking for when you start your day. I have your students go into each day with an intention to look for what they appreciate. By having them ask this question throughout the day without any need to come up with an answer, it's just asking the question Who or what do I appreciate the most right now? Just periodically asking that question primes the brain to notice the experience when it doesn't happen. And noticing what you appreciate as it is happening is so much more powerful than trying to recall later and writing it into a gratitude journal. What you recall later, if you recall later, will do nothing to modulate the stress you had earlier in the day. So we want we want appreciation in the moment. There's nothing wrong with, with gratitude journals, but what we want to increase is everyone's ability to appreciate right then in that moment so they can automatically Modulate stress at that moment and throughout the day. Explain to students why this takes effort. We see everything. Our eyes work fine, but not so much of what we see do we truly notice. Our brains automatically become alert when we sense danger, but not necessarily so alert when we see or hear something that would be worth appreciating, unless we teach the brain to do that. So I hope your kiddos become better at noticing the good and more mindful of the moment itself. Give your students a chance to tell about a moment they appreciated by building it into the routine of the day. This could be a topic at snack time or morning meeting or after returning from lunch or recess or during any quiet moments of transition. Noticing and telling about the good can also establish positive and hopeful memories of school, memories that we hope are triggered when trauma-impacted kiddos return to school the next day. It's natural for trauma-impacted children to focus on problems. What's wrong, what's lacking, what's bothersome and irritating and threatening, what's not working, who doesn't like them, who's mean. That's how the trauma-impacted brain functions. But thinking that way, seeing things that way, raises stress levels all day long, even when nothing stressful is occurring. That's why we have to work on shifting the default focus to more of what we appreciate, So our kiddos automatically notice more good in the day. And so we can periodically and effortlessly quiet this stress response. Now, there won't be more good in the day, but their brains will get better at noticing the good that's already there. When children sharpen their skills in recognizing kindness and when their brains get better at appreciating small, wonderful moments, children start seeing the good instead of the threatening all around them. On this slide are some examples that you can use to help Students think about the type of things they might appreciate, but notice how significant the small things can be. Now just to read a, a few examples. Someone took time away from what they were doing to show you how to do something, and they were super patient. Someone asked you to help them out. Another student let you borrow something that you really needed. You were surprised to discover your favorite snack in your lunchbox, or you just mastered something hard that you've been trying to learn for a long time. You can also prompt students with reflection questions throughout the day, such as those on this slide. Students don't have to answer reflection questions or report in. The question you pick, the one they periodically ask themselves, just primes their brain and gets them ready to notice when the experience happens. It's easy for positive experiences to go by unnoticed and to be overshadowed by negative experiences. It's easy for those experiences to be forgotten altogether. So use this list of reflection questions to help your students notice and remember more of what they appreciate. Now just to read a few reflection question examples. What is something hard that you accomplished today? What was an experience that made you feel proud? Notice your own act of compassion, a time you reached out and offered support. Maybe you pick one or two questions or intentions to take into the day, things your students can look forward. To. Don't try to focus on too many things, just like one or two at a time. The more these reflection questions are asked, the more you're priming the brain to become alert to and to more automatically recognize uplifting experiences when they happen. Remember, tell your students not to worry about the answers to the questions. Just repeatedly asking the question throughout the day, that's the critical part of this brain training exercise. You can read more about the impact of gratitude on emotional and academic functioning and the science behind that in my website article on positive psychology. Okay, we are approaching the final five or so minutes of this webinar. And we're gonna finish up with a very brief covering of a few additional categories of support. As I said, a full presentation of each category would be another full webinar. So here we have a chance to just say a quick couple of things about each topic. But there's more that you can access by searching any of these topics on my website. Routine. Routine provides comfort and a brain-body settling effect because routines bring familiarity and predictability. Routines make it easier during the day to anticipate and predict. When kiddos have increased trust in how things are likely to unfold, they're less stressed by the unexpected and more secure in the structure and safety of their environment. For all of us routine creates that mind body settling effect. When the school day is run through a series of set connected routines and nearly every activity that occurs during the day follows a detailed and predictable routine, from impacted kiddos feel more settled and prepared and they're better able to manage the small bumps that are always going to occur throughout the day. Routines also enable our kiddos to be more present focused and they help keep everything in proper perspective making it easier to keep intrusive thoughts and feelings and irrelevant threats and worries in the background. Chaos in a day of random activity, like when the teacher needs to constantly tell the students what to do instead of having a routine that does that, that does the opposite. It elevates stress and triggers more trauma memory. So check out the resource slides to find numerous articles on designing and implementing supportive classroom routines. Self-regulation, as I've discussed, trauma-impacted children have problems modulating their emotions, so they're easily upset and slow to calm down. They're more anxious, worried, and fearful, more tense, angry, and frustrated, quick to snap at people. In some things, these students experience higher arousal just by being near others who are experiencing strong emotion. For all of us, many of the emotions in others produce a contagious effect in us. For these reasons, it's important to actively manage the stress level in the classroom. It's important to be aware of when stress elevates in the classroom and to bring that down as needed. Interrupt stress throughout the day using various settling routines, some class-wide and some done individual routines that reset for calm and settled. The resource section at the end of this webinar can direct you to numerous articles on restorative breaks and resetting for calm communication. Our words give us an opportunity to build and establish relationships with students. So they should be chosen with care and spoken strategically, especially with trauma impacted students. Words can upset students and words can comfort students or encourage students. Words can activate negative memories that are completely unrelated to the present situation and words can activate positive memories about the classroom, memories that you helped to make. The primary objective in communicating with a class that may have trauma-impacted kiddos is to avoid language that could trigger a trauma reaction. For example, you you may remember that one source of trauma from our earlier discussion is chronic shaming, belittling, humiliation, and rejection. So avoid verbal correction that could sound threatening, embarrassing, or humiliating. Avoid words that may shame Blame or belittle. Here are some common examples of classroom language that could shame, blame, humiliate, and threaten, and could easily trigger traumatized kiddos. All right, here we go. Is that the way you're supposed to line up? Weren't you listening when I told everybody? Do you think I'm happy with you right now? Who said you could use my scissors? How many times have I told you not to take things off my desk without permission? It's amazing how little you care about your work. I know kids in kindergarten who need to work on this. If you don't get to work right away and finish that math paper, I'm going to take away your free time at the end of the day for a complete review of how to use language that is supportive and encouraging even when correcting kiddos. Language that doesn't trigger a trauma reaction or create high levels of stress and conflict. Look at the reference I've included on supportive communication. Okay, two more quick quick points. Number 1, recognize signature strengths. A signature strength is a strength that distinguishes the person. We all have them. It's a talent, an interest, an aptitude, or an ability, or even a character trait that helps the individual feel unique, valued, or important. Trauma-impacted kiddos need us to find and nurture these signature strengths. And a classroom can be the ideal place to create opportunities for them to be valued in this way. The list of strengths is... Nearly limitless, but students are not necessarily aware of them, nor do they always understand how these strengths are valued in the classroom. It's our job to do that, to look for, recognize, and value these strengths, these special interests and abilities, and to find a way for the classroom community to benefit so students can feel like they're a vital contributing part of their own community. So, for more information on how to do that, look at the reference section for information on shaping student identity. And finally, Manage perception. Keep students in the present. Perception is highly variable in all of us, but even more so with children impacted by trauma. Students who've been put down and harshly criticized outside of school, for example, are more likely to become defensive and misperceived when they're corrected by the teacher. A teacher correcting a student can be misperceived as the teacher criticizing the student, humiliating the student, or picking on the student. We want to help students solve the problems that are right in front of them, Current problems in real time, instead of solving the problem after it's been distorted by misperception, we're solving the problem that was manufactured from their emotional memory. So the resource slide has a reference on the management of perception that can help you prevent misperception and reorient students when they do misperceive. Okay, here we are at the end. Thanks so much for the privilege of your attention. And remember this, for children impacted by trauma, the best predictor of their current mental health functioning is their current connectedness. That's where you come in. Relational history, how connected you are to people and community in a positive way is more predictive of mental health than your history of adversity. The classroom gives us the opportunity to provide kiddos with this connectedness, with dozens of small moments every day, Moments of attunement, compassion, recognition, appreciation, seeing the good, moments where children can feel settled, safe, and calm, where they can feel valued, worthwhile, and proud. Those are the healing moments you can provide. You can't change or get rid of the past, but you can create new memories, new associations for kiddos that can shape their view of themselves and their view of others. And you can change default reactions for these kiddos that better enable them to learn, grow, and develop. In the words of Chesare Pavesi, we do not remember days, we remember moments. So good luck creating those moments in your classroom. And here are the resource slides uh, and you'll get a PowerPoint uh, of this so you can uh, reference these. These are the related topics on that first slide that we covered in the webinar. This is a resource slide that goes in great deal, detail over the trauma content that was in this webinar. And these next two slides are additional resources and references, websites, uh, books that might be helpful. That is it, so thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Plummer. I know, and, and thanks for all, all of you for hanging in there. Um, again, I know this comes at the end of a long day for many of you. Dr. Plummer, will take questions if you want to ask any now. Um, he mentioned, um, again, his website and the RISAS website, risas.org, um, for viewing past and, um, future webinars.
0: I just wanted to add that, um, you know, a lot is packed in to, uh, 65 or 70 minutes like that, um. And the best way, I think, to benefit from this experience is to go back over the length once, once it's sent to you and watch rewatch segments at your own pace. Um, you're not expected to, to sit in on uh, an experience like this and walk away feeling like you understand everything and you know just what you want to do.
1: And all our webinars are um, can be accessed through our website um, for just that purpose. When they are edited, they will be posted on that site. So thank you, everyone, um, for tuning in, and hope to see many of you on November second for youth empowerment.
0: Thanks for watching. If you like this webinar and would like to see more like it, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. To follow Rhode Island Student Assistance Services on social media, please see the description below for all of our accounts. And again, for your chance to win a $100 gift card, please fill out the survey in the description down below. Thank you!